Dive into the start of summer at Whole Foods Market. Check out their summer splash event with sales on fresh organic produce, organic strawberries, and a fan favorite sale on Ben and Jerry's and Talenti. Explore deals on grill-friendly meats like organic air-chilled chicken breast, beef and chicken kebabs, all with no antibiotics ever from our meat department. Plus, grab easy sides from prepared foods and cool off with refreshing drinks. Kick off your summer and shop in store or online at Whole Foods Market today. Hey, I'm Ben Rhodes, and you are listening to Crooked Conversations. I recently published a book called The World As It Is about my time in the Obama White House. I was there for all eight years, and on this series of Crooked Conversations, I wanted to take a deeper dive and look at the backstory to some of the issues that I deal with in my book. And I have been very lucky to be joined by some of the people who were there with me over the course of that time in the Obama White House. So over these episodes, we've heard about what it was like to write speeches for President Obama, Uh, We've looked at the Russian intervention in the 2016 election, and we will also be looking at Benghazi and how the constellation of Republican politics and right-wing media ultimately helped lead to Donald Trump uh, and the world that we're living in today. But today we're going to cover the U.S. approach to negotiating with Cuba and the historic normalization between the United States and Cuba and our relations, and President Obama's historic 2016 trip to Havana. I'm here with Bernadette Meehan, and this is very exciting to me because Bernadette was closer to me than anybody else who I worked with in the White House. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. Okay, so I'm here with Bernadette Meehan. This is very exciting to me. Hi, Bernadette. Hi, Ben. We've been talking about uh, different pieces of the Obama White House, my own experience, uh, some things in my book, and obviously... One of the main issues that I focused on was Cuba, but also one of the main people that I worked with was Bernadette Meehan and different roles, which we'll get to here. And Bernadette ended up being essentially the person who played the critical role in helping to organize President Obama's trip to Havana uh, in March of 2016. So that that's obviously the main thing we'll focus on here. But I, I thought just to to give people context, Bern. Why don't you just start by describing, like, you were on Wall Street, right? I started my career on on Wall Street, that's right, working in foreign exchange trading uh, for J.P. Morgan. Yeah. Um, and I loved it, but just didn't feel the passion. I couldn't imagine waking up every single day and doing that for the rest of my life. Yeah. Uh, so sought a different path and found my way into the Foreign Service, which was the absolute right place for me. And what year was that? So this was in 2004 that I joined the Foreign Service. So you're kind of like in that post-9-11 generation, uh, met a lot of people kind of your age who came into the Foreign Service after 9-11. Yep. You were in a bunch of different places, right? Yep. I served in uh, Colombia for two years. I volunteered to go to Baghdad in 2006 during the height of the surge. I studied Arabic for a year and then spent two years in Dubai uh, in the Persian Gulf after that before I came back to Washington. So this is kind of like, you know, Americans don't see what foreign service officers do, but they do a lot and they, they get to a lot of places. And I guess the quick question is, did you have a favorite? Like, I, I never even asked you that. Like, Ooh. of all the places you were posted? 
you know, they're all so different, which is the beauty of it's the like foreign choosing service. Choosing between your children. Yeah, or it is. It's yeah. it is. It's choosing between your children. I mean, they all are. They're all different. I mean, Colombia is just vibrant and warm, and Colombians love family and music and eating and dancing. Yeah. Uh, Baghdad obviously was a completely different situation, but the Iraqi people are smart and resilient and and incredible. Um, and it was a good experience there under really difficult conditions. Um, and Dubai is sort of a city that glitters. Uh, yeah. It's sort of uh, everything you'd imagine it would be and, and beyond. So a really unique experience in, in a difficult neighborhood of the world. Yeah, that you wouldn't expect to have this Absolutely. city. Okay, so you go to the State Department then. Uh, you work for Hillary Clinton. And then you came over to work on the NSC, the National Security Council, as a spokeswoman in 2012. Yes. And ultimately became the spokesperson for the National Security Council. So kind of my right-hand woman and uh, to the listeners of the pod, successor to Tommy Vitor. That's so right. An illustrious legacy of yep. people here. Now, I obviously was also doing these secret negotiations with Cuba. Do you remember, I'm, I'm trying to remember when I brought you into that. And I'm, the key point here is that you had to plan the announcement. You know, we were going to pop up on December 17, 2014 and announce to the world that we were normalizing relations with Cuba. And you had to, the strange job of planning a public rollout of something that was secret yes. that not many people read into. So, so, like, what do you remember about getting read into that, getting your mind around it, and, and like, planning this announcement that you knew was going to shock people? Yeah. So I remember you and Ricardo Zuniga, who yep. was your, your partner in the negotiations, uh, bringing me into a conference room and saying that you were doing something really that was going to shake, yeah. up, uh, shake up the game uh, on Cuba. And I remember uh, the two of you sitting down and sort of walking me through the parameters of what you were working on. And it was one of those few experiences you have in life where you feel like your mind is really, truly blown. And the funny thing is, I remember in, in the lead up and the planning of how we were going to do this rollout and finalize the negotiations, uh, being one of the few people who knew when you were traveling. Uh, and at the same time, we were dealing with some issues related to the Iran nuclear deal. Yeah. And I remember one day being in the bathroom. Oh, God, I forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> really freaked out about something that had happened with the Iran deal. And you called me with a really bad phone connection because you were doing these secret negotiations and nobody yeah. else really knew where you were. Yeah. Um, and, and I was one of the few and having to sort of dance around when people would say, well, where is Ben to weigh in <laughs> yeah. on this? And yeah. I would say, well, you know, he with his wife, you know, she's having a baby, Anne's pregnant, yeah. or he's not feeling well today, and always having to make up yeah. some reason why why you weren't there when I didn't when make it easier this. for you too because I didn't tell anybody, I didn't make up excuses, I just kind of didn't come to work. That's right. It yeah. was just the, the Where's Ben yeah. game, which was <laughs> yeah. a common game yeah. in the West Wing at yeah. the time. Yeah. Um, so I remember you guys bringing me into this, and and you're right. You know, the challenge was how do you plan for something that if anything gets out before we're ready to announce it, it could yeah. threaten the entire thing. Yeah. And you know the the premium at the time really being on the safety of Alan Gross and yeah. making sure that that he was released safely and everything else sort of being gravy on top. Yeah. Yeah. And because we had this intricate, you know, sequence where you know, Alan Gross, a USAID contractor, was in prison in Cuba. And there was also an intelligence asset of the United States that we needed to get out of Cuba. We're going to be picked up on separate planes right. in exchange for three Cubans that we were releasing from prison. Yeah. And then Obama and Castro are going to announce this jointly, I mean, separately, but at the same time. And then fact sheets are going to go out and, yeah. and, and briefings are going to be done yeah. to the Congress and the press. And 
you came up with a code name. Was that your idea? It was. So we needed a way to be able to communicate with the very small group across the State Department, Treasury, the intelligence community, and the White House. And there were times when we needed to communicate about unclassified matters related to this, but yeah. we didn't want it to sort of be be something that someone could could find out if they were monitoring email. Uh, so we called it Project Ardea. Ardea yeah. is the Spanish word for squirrel. <laughs> and it was in honor of the Hanna-Barbera cartoon character, Secret Squirrel. Yeah. Yes, going going way way back. Squirrel <laughs> enterprise. Yeah. So he was our our secret squirrel. Uh, Project Ardea is how we referred to it, and that's when people knew, you know, check your classified system for an update, or yeah. we need to get together in person to discuss something about about Cuba, essentially. So we had, you know, a year and a half of these secret negotiations, as I described in the book, and some of you guys have heard me talk about. And it was me and and Ricardo Zuniga on the American side, who is just just like the greatest guy in the history of people. Yeah. Um, and the best Cuba were in the U.S. government. And then Alejandro Castro, Raul Castro's son, was a, the uh, the interlocutor on the Cuban side. We make the announcement. The rollout was brilliantly planned, of course, yep. um, and by Bernadette. And then we get all this momentum for U.S.-Cuba relations. What was strange to me is that even as the State Department then gets involved in setting up an embassy, Alejandro very much still wanted to talk to the White House. That's right. um, he liked having this White House channel. So I kept traveling down to Havana. Ricardo moved on, and so I kind of didn't have the same team. And we knew that the big thing we could do is have Obama go and be yep. the first U.S. president to go since the Cuban Revolution, that that would be the transformative event. It's incredible, Anne-Marie, to think about this, that the last U.S. president to visit Cuba was Calvin Coolidge. I know. 88 years ago. Yeah. And this is, I mean, it, I don't think for a lot of people this has sunk in how historic of a moment this is for a United States president to yeah. be there in Cuba. So you left in uh, for a time in 2015. 2015. In June. You got married and like thought you were getting out. It yep, was like that's right. But I pulled you back like in. Like Michael Corleone. Yes, I thought I was out. escaping, but I couldn't get out. Um, because I basically <laughs> put together this pickup team to run this the the Obama trip. We knew the secret is frankly that Obama wanted to go in March because that was his kid's spring break. He wanted right. to take his kids, so we kind of yeah. knew we had to hit the target of March. So I brought you back to basically run the trip planning. Yep. Um, when Do you remember exactly when you... So I remember exactly. I had just gotten engaged on Christmas Day, and you called me on New Year's Eve. You were in Hawaii with the president and yeah. your family. Oh, that's right. And I got this phone call. My, my fiancé, Evan, was in, in the shower, and you called, and it was like this awkward, stilted conversation yeah. where you were like, hey, what's going on? Yeah. And I was like, well, it's New Year's Eve. Well, What's going on with you? Yeah. Uh, and you sort of, you know, asked me about the engagement. We talked for a few minutes. I just said, well, why are you calling me on New Year's Eve? Yeah. And you said, look, Obama's going to go to Cuba. We're going to do this. Yeah. Will you come back and, and help organize the trip? And how could I say no yeah. at that point? I yeah. Mean, I, I forgot. I remember I was walking on the beach in Hawaii. Yep. It seems great when you go to Hawaii, but nobody else goes. So, like, right. you know, you're like all by yourself. Right. And you're working. Eve. Yeah, you're working. So I'm calling you and you probably <laughs> yeah. don't even know it's New Year's. I probably didn't even know it's New Year's Eve. Yeah. So the theory of this trip was to basically cover everything from how do we get as much policy done as we can, how do we make as many changes in the U.S. government as we can to our Cuba policy to open things up, symbolically, yeah. like what are the things that we can do to to show that you know this is a new relationship and to kind of build goodwill with the Cuban people, how do we bring in the Cuban-American community that obviously has very passionate feelings about Cuba. How do we, you know, lift up cultural touchstones like 
baseball, yep, <laughs> you know. Um, I mean, do you, what was your, like, when you sat down, you're trying to get your mind around how did you think through this trip? Like, how did you try to organize that? We wanted to get American businesses in. I mean, this was probably one of the most daunting things I've worked on in the U.S. government. You know, Cuba as a whole, but this this trip, even just a microcosm of that. I mean, as you said, there are so many touchstones. The expectations are so high. Yeah. Um, he was the first sitting president in something like 88 years. I think yeah. it was Coolidge or, yeah, or someone Coolidge, like that yeah. who was the last one to go. And you're also dealing with planning a presidential trip with spotty communications, yeah. lack of Internet service in many places on the island, and a host government that has very rigid ideas about what they see to to be a successful trip that yeah. don't necessarily mesh with what our ideas are. Yeah. And so, you know, you you really felt like you were carrying the weight of, of something really historical and enormous on your shoulders. Yeah. And you know me, I also get nervous and I'm very high anxiety and, and high yes. stress. So it was, wow, there's, <laughs> there's yeah. so many moving parts. Um, how do we how do we do this in in the way that really lives up to what's expected of us? Yeah. Yeah, no, so we basically, and we had a great team. And, we had a great team. Uh, Siobhan, know, Siobhan Shields. Siobhan Shields is yep. special. Kudos. But th- we, number one, we change as much of our policy as we can. So we, yep. we, we basically make it as easy as possible for Americans to travel there. Yep. We make it much easier for certain types of business transactions to take place. Cigars um, and alcohol. Cigars um, and alcohol. People can buy as much of that and bring it back as they want, yep. which is obviously very popular. We set up. Direct flight, you know, the direct flights. Direct uh, mail. Direct direct mail service resumes. So we're doing all this. We're trying to get U.S. businesses into Cuba and get the Cubans to sign business deals. And then we're building a trip itself. And we're trying to get the Cubans to do some things uh, as well, like get rid of the the tax. The, they had this tax where if you use a dollar, essentially, that's right. 10% surcharge. And obviously want them to extend Internet access. And, And actually, this was really hard because the Cubans... Never wanted to look like they're doing something that we we're pressuring them to do. That's right. So, like for instance, they would extend internet access without telling us they were doing it in advance. Right. It, like suddenly, we just see some news story that right. like some Wi-Fi has. But so it doesn't seem like it's in so, response yeah. to our pressure. Yeah, which yeah. really yeah. was too bad because we would have liked to take credit. Um, <laughs> just a couple of things to, before we get to the trip itself. I and mean, one is, I remember we went to Miami mm-hmm. to to basically have a listening session with mm-hmm. Cuban Americans. Right. I remember I knowing this was going to be intense when I met at the gate by a police escort. That's um, right, at the airport. Yeah, that's driving me in like golf carts and they, they were there. Through they the men airport. in earpieces all day. Yep. And, you know, it's a sign that like people in Miami, some people were not very happy about what we were doing. Yep. What was your, like, how do you describe to like a layperson that community and like how they were invested in the Cuba issue and and what your impressions of them were? I would say, I mean, they really served as like a kitchen cabinet. You know, they were they were as much as an uh, of an advisory council to us as any of the experts in the U.S. government, because you can be an expert in the policy. You can be an expert in the history. But, you know, unless you're a Cuban-American or a Cuban, you don't have the passion. Right. You don't have the personal historical ties to what's going on there. You don't have the feeling of being separate separated from family or having family on different sides of, of the issue of is, uh, you know, restoring diplomatic ties a good thing or a bad thing. I mean, there's so much tied up in that, that no matter how much you study it or how much you're ingrained in it, you you don't feel the passion like they do. Yeah. And I think you would agree that, you know, our, our kitchen cabinet in Miami is a passionate group yes, uh, above yes. above all else, very opinionated, yeah. not shy to, to tell us what they really think. And that's why they were so valuable. And I think they had great ideas. And we saw this in language you used in the speech, yeah, yeah, um, in yeah. Some of the groups and organizations that we met with down there, 
that they had really wonderful ideas and frankly, um, I think made us and our policy all the better for their input. I, yeah. I don't think we could have done this without them. So then before we get into the trip itself, you have to go down to kind of start to lay the groundwork here. Yes. And, and I think at the end, we should probably come back and kind of compare <laughs> the North Korea stuff that just happened with what we did here. But so you have to go down there. Now, I've been negotiating with Alejandro, but people, you hadn't met him. Mm-hmm. Alejandro's uh, Raul's son. He was widely seen as like one of the most powerful people in Cuba, if not kind of the second most powerful man. Um, he's a big guy. Um, he... Uh, he, there was a rumor that he lost an eye in, in Angola, Angola, which yes. is a, such a Cuban thing, right? Yes. Um, and kind of gregarious, um, but mysterious to a lot of Americans. He never came to the United States mm-hmm. until, you know, after obviously December 17th. Intimidating. Intimidating. Um, so you get down there, but he has this lovely translator, by the way, who was Fidel Castro's translator too, yep. uh, Juanita. Yep. What happens when you get down there? Well, first of all, I mean, you can imagine the excitement on the plane. We're on a U.S. government sort of branded plane. Yeah. And when you're pulling into Havana in a U.S. government plane, you just think, wow, like yeah. this is real and this is really changing. Like we're, we're, we're open about it. We're flying yeah. in. This is, this is really incredible. As you would imagine, the Cubans were sort of very rigid with the protocol, yeah. uh, lots of security around. I think there was a formidable task in getting the teams to trust each other. You yeah. know, you and Alejandro and Ricardo uh, and, and Alejandro's team, Juanita among them, had this bond. But for the rest of us, it was all sort of, yeah. okay, our bosses all say we have to trust each other and make this work. How do we exactly go about that. But we hit the ground running. I think the most difficult thing was, as I said before, you know, the Cubans had very different ideas of what would make a successful trip. Um, And so there was a lot of negotiating about how they would spend their time in terms of optics. Their ideas were basically like we would go to government facilities. Correct. We will will take you to their showcase. You know, they're they're very proud of their education system, their medical research, their uh, all of that. And so the idea was we will take you to, you know, a medical facility and we will have a scientist who's brilliant. know, give you a talk or a lecture. And we sort of said, well, we're not really sure that will resonate as much. So it was definitely a negotiation, I would say. And by the (laughs) way, they they distrust the United States that has tried to invade them. Yes. And when the U.S. president goes someplace, we basically invade the country. That's right. A thousand screwed people go. We're flying in guns and cars. Um, So that that was a little difficult. They they had a lot to deal with. And, you know, they would say, well, we've had the pope visit and we've had all these other people visit. And we were just kind of like, oh, my friends, you have no idea what's about to what's about to hit you with with the president of the United States coming. But but I do remember at one point after sort of the the big teams were gone, all the logistics folks and security folks, Alejandro and his team took uh, me and Siobhan and our ambassador at the time, the, the fantastic Jeff De Laurentiis, yeah. um, out to dinner to do some sort of policy negotiations. And they took us to, uh, you know, a state-owned restaurant. Yeah. It was in this high tower in Havana, and they were, you know, very proud of it. And we were sitting in this room, uh, and they just broke out bottle after bottle yeah, yeah, after yeah. bottle of rum. Very good rum. I mean, <laughs> right, this is like, like the good Havana amazing Club Amazing rum. This and is not Captain Morgan. No, yeah. and you're thinking to yourself, like, is this a ploy yeah. to sort of get yes. me inebriated yes, and not is. know what I'm talking about? Or are they just like happy to well, share their both. rum? It's both, actually. Like I found over the years, like it's 
a little bit of both. Like, yeah. I mean, I like to think I did my Irish heritage proud yes. by like every glass they put in front of me. I would. No, they're I, very I would impressed that you and Shaban like we, you know we could keep up. Two small women um, going, you know, drinking. Yeah, drink. and then you know we we moved into the formal dinner room, and after dinner they um they knew that I had a sweet tooth. Yeah. Right. So See, they do their research. They on, do yeah. they do their research. That's for sure. And they have this this great meal out in front of us, and then all of a sudden Alejandro got very excited. It was very sweet, uh, and he said, you know, we we have something for you, and I'm thinking. Oh, I'm going to get some cigars to yeah. take home, you know, for my for my fiance who loves them or like yeah. a beautiful bottle of rum. Uh, and these waiters walk in in tuxedos <laughs> yeah. pushing a cart. And on the cart is the biggest ice cream cake you've ever seen <laughs> that's doused in something that looks like green lighter fluid. And they... <laughs> They roll it over and they light it on fire. So it's like this <laughs> flaming ice cream cake. And I thought, just for you, just for me, just for you. this is yeah, the kicker. Yeah, I thought, yeah. well, this is great yeah. for the whole table. And no. they literally put it just in front of me. And then they say, well, yeah. now you need to eat it. And everyone else gets an ice cream sundae in like a tiny little yeah. cup. And I'm sitting here with this massive ice cream cake in front of me. Yeah. It's um, never dull with the Cubans. <laughs> it's never yeah. dull with the Cubans. Yeah. And it was actually a very nice gesture, really. And I did not finish it, but it was uh, If they think tasty. you like something, I mean, I remember they used to, I had these meals where they would have the whole roasted pig. Yes. And Alejandro, like, first time said, you know, the, the guest breaks off the skin, this crispy skin of the pig, and eats it. And I ate it, and he said, he's like, yeah, it's really good. And every time like, I went pig. to Cuba ever again, <laughs> yeah. they'd have a pig. Yes. And I'd always have to, like, even if I wasn't hungry, yes. you'd have to eat the pig. I'd have to sit there and just eat with That's my right. hands the That's skin right. of this pig. Yep. Anyway. Yep. Um, well, so that, I mean, it was a lot of tension, but, like, and everybody's stressed out. Yeah. We're asking for things they don't want to give. Correct. Um, we wanted Obama's speech to be broadcast on television. Right. We wanted this event with entrepreneurs, which is kind of fascinating culturally because, they wanted basically Obama to meet their state-owned people. Um, yeah. We wanted to meet these hip young Cubans who yeah. own restaurants and shops, and you know they're self-employed, and so we had to figure out how to make that work. Yeah. Um, we wanted Obama and Castro to take questions at this press conference. That's right. So in addition to all these policy things, and what was interesting in retrospect is they did not give a lot on the policy. Yeah, you know, we wanted to basically reform their whole economy. Mm-hmm. They they weren't going to do that. But they ended up giving a lot on these symbolic things, I think because they wanted it to be a good trip. But we did some things before that were interesting. I mean, just to, to quickly tick through a couple, why don't you – the name Panfilo? Um, yes. Yeah. So this was uh, – Jeff, Ambassador Jeff De Laurentiis' wife had this great idea and she pitched it and, and through Jeff. And I remember him emailing me and he said, look – I bet the president will never do this, but I feel like yeah. I, I need to put it forward. Uh, and Panfilo, who's this well-known Cuban comedian uh, who impersonates like this really old guy who plays dominoes with his friends. He's actually a, a young guy. Uh, he said, why don't you do a phone call with him or some interaction with him? Ay, bueno, no puedo creer, me salió la Casa Blanca Real. Este, eh, eh, usted pudiera <coughs> mandarle un mensaje al presidente Obama, se lo puede dar. This is President Obama. Para que conozca Cuba, para que conozca a su gente. I'm looking forward to it. The American people and the Cuban people are friends. So I remember talking to you about it and you said, like, this is exactly what we need. Yeah. I mean, talk about people to people ties and showing that, you know, it's it's not just about governments interacting. Yeah. Uh, and I remember uh, Obama and Panfilo filmed a phone call in yeah. advance. And then when we were down there, uh, they built an entire replica of the set in yeah. the back of a brewery yeah. where we were doing this entrepreneurial event. Uh, and we recorded this and it went viral. It was one of these, like, amazing videos that just sort of seared across uh, the island and people were so excited yeah. about it. 
Obama, Obama, qué bueno que viniste a conocer la Habana. Obama, Obama, so nice you came to Havana. That's a beautiful song. Thank you so much. You guys are playing dominoes. You know, I've always wanted to learn how to play dominoes. And more people came up to me. I mean, it's important, like, honestly, like, more Cubans came up to me and were like, oh, I saw Panfilo. You it's know, so great. Y- you forget in government that, that gestures like that, yes. like, re- like, they really reach people. Yeah. They make people feel like you respect their culture. That's you know right. who they are. Um, you know, Panfilo was a little edgy, too, for, for Cuba. Yes. Like, he made jokes about ration cards and yep. stuff. And you know, I, I wish we had more of that today, like yeah. the, that yeah. reach out. But so I, I, I remember like the run up, though, like we have all the announcements, the policy changes. We had this Panfilo thing. And the, had... the other good thing about Panfilo was getting to watch President Obama read cue cards in yes. Spanish oh, <laughs> with, yeah, with his yeah. gringo accent. Yeah, sitting. Um, he thinks he speaks better Spanish than he does. Yeah, um, it was it was a little yeah. raw, but yeah. it was a lot of fun. <laughs> Which but you, that almost gives you more points for trying. Yes, um, that's right. We had the first letter uh, of you know we restarted direct mail service and, right. and the first letter was President Obama responding to some elderly Cuban woman who wrote him a letter saying right. she never thought this would happen That's and right. so we cre- there was a lot of good feeling kind of by the time the plane took off yep. to get down there. I remember flying down and it's very powerful when you like fly into Cuba because you fly over Miami, which is like one of the most distinctive cities in the world because yep. you can see South Beach and you can see all these all massive bright developments and, and bright lights in the beach. Yeah. And then suddenly within like minutes, because it's only 90 miles, this very under undeveloped, not even under, like undeveloped island just emerges. Yep. And you see the contrast of essentially the most first world place, Miami, and then this this island has been frozen in time by a mixture of our embargo and you know their system. And Obama looks out the window and he says to me, he's like, that doesn't look like a threat to the national security of the United States, which is basically like how we've justified this policy for decades. Mm-hmm. Um, we land and it's it's raining. Pouring and rain. You must have been so stressed out because you're trying to make everything go perfect. So and- stressed out. And and if you remember, you know, you and Siobhan and I were down there to do some last minute negotiations and you and Siobhan flew back to come yeah. back down with the president. Yeah. And Siobhan has this great picture where we're, you know, the plane was a very small government plane, not yeah. a branded plane, right? Yeah. A, a small one uh, that was sort of landed on this dirt airstrip because it was a very low key sort yeah. of not secret, but, you know, yes. sort yeah. of confidential yeah. visit. And Siobhan has this great picture that she took from the window of the plane where you guys are taking off back to America. Just and leaving you there. <laughs> you're yeah. leaving me there to finish up the negotiations. Yeah. And it's me, Alejandro, Juanita, and, the, and the, the other two yeah. Cuban guys. Yeah. And I just have this look on my face like, oh, can I come? shoot. Well, and, and you can vouch. That was a really crazy trip like where I got pulled into some three-hour meeting with Raul Castro. That's right. Where he went off about all manner of things, you know, a an Italian businessman that he let live on and a small sharks. island to feed sharks off the coast of Cuba yeah. and pounded the table and said, you know, we Cubans don't want your candy, you know, you Americans. <laughs> and um, so, you know, it was edgy, too. But um, we get down there. It's raining. Um, rain, yeah. But like there was also just this great feel like Rachel, you guys had set it up so remarkably that like. We're traveling down there. We've got members of Congress with us. We have Cuban Americans with us. We had Jackie Robinson's widow with us and daughter um, and daughter. Yep. Jimmy Buffett was down there. Like Derek people Jeter, just turned up on their Derek Jose Andres. So yeah, we set up the baseball this major league baseball game that we'll get yeah. to. So it also felt though like this like this 
cast of American characters yeah. was like descending on Cuba. Yeah. You but know? everyone who had a stake in it. You know, emotional, who, yeah. yeah, who really had an emotional stake in, in what was happening. Like Jackie Robinson had played in Havana, so that's, that's right. why his widow is yeah. coming. I'm Ben Rhodes, and we will be back with more of my conversation with Bernadette Meehan after this break. No matter who you are, brushing your teeth is one of the most important parts of your day to stay healthy. You know that. Quip knows that. And their team of dentists and designers is focused on helping you take care of your mouth much better. Quip's subscription model is a thoughtful, inexpensive solution for people who want to make it easy to keep up with the simple habits that will improve your oral health, make you much more pleasant to be around, make your loved ones' lives that much better. Let Quip do the thinking for you when it comes to your teeth. Who wants to think about their teeth? Let Quip do that thinking for you. So let me just tell you what makes Quip so different. For starters, Quip is an electric toothbrush that's a fraction of the cost of bulkier brushes, while still packing just the right amount of vibrations to help clean your teeth. Quip's built-in timer helps you clean for the dentist-recommended two minutes with guiding pulses that remind you when to switch sides. Next, Quip's subscription plans are for your health, not just convenience. They deliver new brush heads on a dentist-recommended schedule every three months for just $5, including free shipping worldwide. Quip also comes with a mount that suctions right to your mirror and unsticks to use as a cover for hygienic travel wherever you take your teeth. And I hope you take your teeth wherever you go. And finally, everyone loves Quip. They were on Oprah's O-List named one of Time's Best Inventions, and is the first subscription electric toothbrush accepted by the American Dental Association, the people who you should be listening to, even more than me. Plus, they're backed by a network of over 20,000 dentists and hygienists and hundreds of thousands of happy brushers who use Quip every day. Quip starts at just $25. And if you go to getquip.com slash crookedconvos right now, You'll get your first refill pack free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash crookedconvos. Spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash crookedconvos. So we go through the first day, which is Obama touring Old Havana. He sees the cardinal who helped... uh, orchestrate the Vatican role in our negotiations with Cuba. He's with Mrs. Obama and the girls. Mrs. Obama and the girls is not normal. So I remember there was some relief that first day. This is actually happening. That night we all go to a Paladar, which for people who don't know, it's like there's state-owned restaurants and then there's basically people take their homes and turn them into restaurants and cook for you. Yeah, um, and we went to La Guarida. Yeah, how did you find that anyway? Like, so it's, it's a very it's a well known yeah. Paladar there. Um, uh, I think most visitors probably make a stop there at some point. But it has, aside from phenomenal food, a great bar and this incredible roof deck. Right, oh, yeah, and you you yeah. go in through this old building and there's murals on the wall and it's it's just this incredibly um, Cuban, authentic Cuban feeling place yeah. and uh, and you have this great roof deck and people are smoking cigars and drinking rum and it's very hip but also 
also very old world at the same time. Yeah. Um, and it just seemed like the perfect place for such a random mix of characters to actually convene and sort of celebrate the start of this historic trip. Yeah. Um, and you're right. You know, you sort of look over and you're like, well, there's Jimmy Buffett talking to yeah. Derek Jeter, who's talking to the Cuban chef, who's talking yeah. to, you know, this young, hip Cuban designer. Yeah. It and felt it like this is like a good thing that's happened. I mean, I remember thing. also like, Jose Andreas like chest bumping me and telling us what to order and it like great. it was a great vibe. Yep. Some Cuban hip hop guy smoking cigars. That's right. Yo Toel. Like, Susan Rice from the Orishas. Like, yeah. So the next day though, we like things get interesting. So we had ne- negotiated very like insistently that they take questions, mm-hmm. and I think it is important to note at the press conference. Yeah. That that um, well actually why do you why why was that important? Why is it important for Raúl Castro? to take questions with Barack Obama after their press conference? Well, I think, you know, we've always made a point in all of our trips, including China, which was probably the only other one that was as sort of difficult as this to to really negotiate, to say, you know, we believe and we support in in a free press. You know, the press has a vibrant and important role to play uh, in in any democracy. Um, Cuba, of course, is is not a democracy like the U.S., but it's important to sort of stay true to our values even when we're going to places that we don't necessarily agree with the government and and all that the government does. Uh, And when President Obama travels abroad and takes a press conference, he answers questions from people. and I think, you know, what resonated in, in one way, because I know you and I both spent a lot of time talking to Alejandro and talking to these guys about this, is that it, even at a minimum, would have looked awkward for President Castro. You know, there's yeah. all this attention of the world, but also his own people on this. You know, you don't want to seem like you're afraid to, yeah. to answer a question. And it's this historic moment. And why would you risk sort of spoiling it and making that the story yeah. that, that you're afraid to take a question? And so... I think it was it was critically important. And I think, uh, you know, the world was watching and I think our press appreciated uh, what we did. And, uh, you know, Jim Acosta, who takes a lot of heat these days, uh, who, um, you know, is of Cuban descent, got to ask a question, you know, at this historic press conference. And I think that, again, was another layer layer of sort of symbolism and a connection and the passion and the connection that people have to, to Cuba. And Cubans have never seen their president take have to questions, questions, right, yeah. and have to, and then, and and then adversarial questions. Jim Acosta asked him about political prisoners, yep. you know, and and then Andrea Mitchell asked a question, and and so this is, I remember just feeling like I'd never been on a trip where everything that happened was historic. Like That's it was right. historic. Every little thing to when us. Obama landed, it was yep. historic when he stood in Revolutionary Square with like the image of Che there. Yep. And they played the Cuban American national anthems. It was historic when Raul Castro took questions. Yeah. And there was this kind of bizarre scene where he didn't hear the question. That's and right. then he kind of yelled at Jim Acosta and said, we have no political That's prisoners. Right. Give me the list. And That's right. But it was, it, 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 you know, it, the, the Cubans, like I said, had not seen their president, you know, challenge like this. Yeah. Um, and and so then after the press conference, um, which, you know, would have been enough for one day. Right. And which uh, awkward with that ended with that awkward sort of. Yeah. Castro tried to kind of hold his hand in right. triumph with Obama. And, right. and you're always worried about like and this is actually anticipates the North Korea thing. Yes. You don't want to be too close to someone who's, you know, let's face it, a dictator. Um, That's right. And so Obama's wary of that being the picture on yeah. all of Cuban media. So he kind of. His hand was a little limp. Because yeah. uh, optics matter, right? Yeah, I mean, you're, and you're passing we're a engaging them, but we're not saying everything you do is right. okay. We're not endorsing yeah. everything. Which Trump did with Kim Jong-un, That's obviously. Right. Um, now, the next piece of this, and, and what's interesting about this trip is the trip itself kind of was meant to be emblematic of our policy, yeah. right? So first, we're engaging the government because mm-hmm. we were building this relationship, putting the Cold War in the past, 
setting up bilateral agreements and cooperation on things, showing the world that we can move past this. Then the next event was with these entrepreneurs mm-hmm. because a big part of our policy was Cuba used to be entirely communist. They opened up their economy so that some of these people could have their own businesses, mm-hmm. you know, again, shops, taxis, restaurants. Because of the opening where we could let in all this money from the U.S., you know, yeah. remittances from Cuban Americans and travelers, the number of Cubans who are self-employed went from like 10 percent to almost like a third, I think. Mm-hmm. So we wanted to showcase this sector of the Cuban economy. Mm-hmm. And so why don't you then like why don't you describe that event because that event was pretty remarkable too. That event was yeah, yeah that was maybe been actually and the, you know the best most unique event. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's probably right and it required an extraordinary amount of behind the scenes maneuvering for what may have yeah. looked like a pretty run of the mill sort of run of show. Um, but you're right. I mean, the Cubans had always uh, seen the state-run enterprises as sort of the backbone of their economy. And while they had opened up space for these Quinta Propistos, they were certainly wary of them and didn't yeah. want to be highlighting them. And we argued back and forth for weeks and weeks and weeks about who would be allowed to attend, who would speak at the event, how it would run, what they were allowed to say. And you know, we said, look, for us, it's about entrepreneurship. And they said, for us, it's about state-owned enterprises. And I think this is one of the places where you know, we compromised. And I think people like me who maybe take a, a harder line sometimes thought, well, we're caving in and this is like a bad thing and this doesn't represent what yeah. we're all about. But the reality is, and I think you were the one who said this, after the event was over and Soledad O'Brien was was the moderator and you had these Quinta Propistos who had to get up and, and talk about their businesses and you had some state-owned enterprise folks who, who got up and spoke about their businesses. And someone said, this is probably the first time yeah. They'd never that, in a room together. Yeah, that yeah. they had to be in a room together. Yeah. And these members of the government were forced to listen to these young people who were running their own businesses. And we have to look at it as that in itself is a breakthrough and an accomplishment and an important movement forward, even if it's not exactly how we planned. And I think that's right. You know? Yeah. I mean, I I remember talking to a great journalist, John Lee Anderson, after, who also said one of the most powerful moments to him was Brian Chesky gets up, the CEO mm-hmm. of Airbnb. We brought him too. It was just a cast of thousands. And he talks to Obama. And Obama asked him, like, Brian, how old are you? And he said, I don't know, 29 or whatever he is. And Obama's like, and how much is your company worth? And it's like X billion dollars. Yep. And John Lee said that was actually one of the most powerful things on, on the island because, like, that's what – capitalism can do you know right. like 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 the, the the cuban young people and there are a lot of them you know for them to see someone their age who's able to just have an idea and make a business yeah. you know that was incredibly provocative in a way yep. to showcase capitalism in the heart of havana like yeah. that yeah. um even if we didn't intend it that way i mean c- right. candidly like we weren't thinking that that much about you know what brian chesky's president say but we were thinking about if you if you could showcase these entrepreneurs and get them in the room Ultimately, when we you know had cooperatives and stayed on people, yeah. it did create a dialogue that never happened before. In Cuba. That's right, um, which is progress in its own right. Yeah, um, and you know Sarah Heck, who helped work with the entrepreneurs, and and Duncan yeah. Teeter, who of course is one Duncan of our Teeter, favorite yes. advanced guys. Who I remember, you know, Duncan Teeter the day before I think the president landed, you know had his own frustrations working on the logistics, you know, with the Cubans. I mean, sort of banging his head against the wall and thinking, oh, God, this is so difficult. Um, Sent a text message to those of us that were on the ground. And it had a photo he had taken on his iPhone of a bunch of Cuban workers who were sort of building out the stage and the set sitting there staring at they had a massive American flag you know, hanging down from the rafters next to a massive Cuban flag. Yeah. And all of these Cubans were just sitting there looking at it. And he he took this snapshot, you know, just sort of run of the mill on his iPhone and sent it. And it was this incredibly powerful image of just 
what are we doing here? You know, yeah. when, when's the last time anyone has seen those two flags hanging Together, next to each other? Yeah. Certainly not, you know, the Cubans in the room or any of us who are, you know, young and working on this trip. Um, and it was those little moments behind the scenes, I think, also that reminded you of the importance of what we were doing, yeah, yeah. even if not everything yeah. was exactly as we would have wanted it or how the Cubans would have wanted yeah, it. Yeah, it took on its own chemistry yeah, in a way. Um, I remember that was like one of the most powerful. It was very I mean, poignant. Yeah, because you're, you're just haggling and then you see that and you know that that's going to have an impact on people. That's right. Um, There's a breakthrough even, you don't if even it's know. unintended. Yeah, you don't even know what the impact is going to yeah. be. So then then I think there was like a state dinner uh, I remember going to, which was kind of interesting because you had Cuban Americans in the room with Cubans yep. and you know prominent people and left-wing people and but others. But then I had to go – I remember I had to go to Obama's where he was staying at Jeff Laurentis's yeah. again, amazing, amazing ambassador for the U.S. You went to this major league baseball party because if one piece was engaging the government and one piece was engaging the economy, another was culture, and MLB was going to be a big piece of that. Yep. Um, what happened at that party? So that this I wasn't was an able epic party for the ages, and yeah. I should say, you know, the MLB team was phenomenal to they work were with. Great, yeah. And when I went down on the original sort of scoping trip, and they took me to see this stadium, the baseball stadium, and I just thought, oh, oh my god, there is zero chance we can ready. have this yeah. ready in six weeks. I mean, they had to bring in an engineer to level. The, the actual literal playing field. Yeah. The seats were crumbling. I mean, there was like holes in the roof. And I thought, first of all, Secret Service is never going to approve this. Second of all, like, how are these people going to play baseball out yeah. here? But the MLB team, you know, in conjunction with the the Cuban team, really, you know, they did an amazing job. Up, they yeah. fixed it up. Um, and so they threw this big celebratory party in um, this old castle in, in part of Havana. And it really was a collection of sort of all of these amazing people that we were yeah. talking about. I mean, they had a guy rolling cigars. They had all of these classic cars lining the roadway up. They had a back room where Penny Pritzker was talking to Derek Jeter, who was talking to. You're a Yankee fan, so you're. I'm a Yankee fan, so yeah. I was like totally yeah. excited about that. Um, and then all of a sudden, the best part of it was everyone sort of drinking and enjoying themselves, and you know, in a, in a really good mood about what's happening. And then you just hear like Margaritaville. Yeah. And Jimmy Buffett's just up on stage giving an impromptu Jimmy concert. Buffett loves Cuba. Like he loves told me Cuba. this. Yeah. I mean, he's. And always, he did this full on concert. He wanted to sing the national anthem. Right he wanted to sing the national yeah. anthem. And you had Cubans and Americans just enjoying in this. You can imagine like the perfect Havana night, this yeah. balmy air. Oh, man. Sounds you know, good. you're like in this beautiful old location. Jimmy Buffett's singing. Yeah. You know, people are talking about baseball, cigars, rum. It just was. It was it was a moment of levity, yeah, and it was a a pretty incredible experience. Yeah, no, it was I very surreal. I yeah, I mean, but then I remember you guys came back to the hotel where I was working on the speech Obama's going the next day. So the next day, Obama's going to address the Cuban people, and they're going to broadcast this live on television. They, to their credit, you Absolutely. know, they said uncensored. Yep. Didn't you know, see the speech in advance. Didn't see the speech in advance, and. And so we had this clean shot to do what no American president had ever been able to do, talk to the Cuban people. And so this was the centerpiece of the trip. And that's what everybody had told us. The, the policies actually don't matter as much as the speech in yeah. a way. And so that night, I remember you and Ricardo, who we basically just made Yank come on bed. this trip, even though he wasn't. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah, because yeah, he was in Brazil. Yeah, he was in Brazil. That's right. And Shaban come to my room. And I just remember it was as good a moment as I had in government because it's like the trip's going well. Mm-hmm. People are excited. The speech is the next day. The baseball game. We had the some next rum day. out. Baseball game, and then just reading the speech, which was this kind of statement of our beliefs about about you know the history that led us here, 
that you can put the past behind you. You know, the Cuba policy I always like to say is about more than Cuba. It was about like, you know, if we can work this out, like maybe the rest of the world can, you know. Um, but also the Cuban people are so wonderful and like just trying to offer them some hope that like things could get better here. Mm-hmm. Like we're we're starting to get rid of this crazy policy. We're starting to open up. Your life can get better. Yes, and we're going to defend our values, our commitment to democracy and human rights here. But we're not going to, you know, we're not going to do that in a manner that punishes you, mm-hmm. the Cuban people. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a nice night, I remember. Um, now, the next day, you had actually worked hard to make sure we could get some people at the speech. You know, That's sometimes right. it's like who controls who's in the, the yeah, crowd. The we wanted to have some people in the audience that would be symbolic, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, and we did a lot of negotiations, even on the venue. I mean, when we went down there on the scoping trip, you know, the Cubans wanted us to do it at – uh, universities yeah. and these auditoriums. And, you know, then you you have to ask the question, well, this university isn't ideologically aligned with sort of the values yeah. of the U.S. That doesn't work. You you want it knowing that it's a, a historic event to be sort of a grand venue that that fits mm-hmm. the the moment. Um, and we found, uh, you know, there, there are Capitol building, which is modeled after our Congress, um, was under construction. Um, So we ended up going to um, one of their, you know, ballet theaters. And it was one of the most spectacular buildings I've ever seen. Uh, And we walked in and we thought immediately, as long as the logistics people and Secret Service are fine with this, this is the place. This is where we're going to have this moment. Um, And we, again, you know, sort of argued a lot with the Cubans about who would have access to the speech. They wanted to fill it with all sort of government ministers. And we insisted on having some young people. Uh, they brought in some American students who were studying medicine at one of the Cuban universities uh, as sort of a show of goodwill to say, here's some young people we think would be excited to see their own president. They're down here studying. So they really tried to meet us halfway. And I remember going into the theater and we, of course, were seated on the side and sort of reserved seating. And uh, you and Ricardo were making last minute, you were making last minute edits to the speech and you had said to Ricardo, why don't you come back and oh, yeah, yeah, prep the yeah. boss on pronunciation? Yeah. And Ricardo was very seriously very writing earnest. out yeah, how to yeah. pronounce, you know, phonetically yeah. uh, the Spanish. And Siobhan and I were sitting there and I remember two things. One is Duncan Teeter, the logistics yes. guy, the site advance guy, you know, surveying the site from one of the balconies, making sure that everything was in order. And then I remember as the crowd filled in, and before uh, Raul Castro came, there is this beautiful prima ballerina, um, Alicia Alonso, oh, yeah, yeah. who, you know, is is quite advanced in age now, you know, losing her sight, who came out onto the balcony yeah. in sort of the president's box, dressed in this stunning gown with a turban on. And when she walked out, it literally captivated the entire audience. Yeah, you know, she's yeah. she's well known around the world, but she did this graceful maneuver where she lifted up her arms and, and there was sort of a sash flowing from her yeah, arms yeah, yeah. to acknowledge the crowd and you just thought like wow this is a moment that you would see in a movie and and that like you know this is bigger than politics you know like she's yeah. probably beloved by people of different ideological views Absolutely. i mean it was it just reminded you that the house stupid and artificial this conflict Absolutely. is between the United States and Cuba. And so that sort of set the scene. And then, of course, you know, President Castro came. And, yeah. and I remember thinking to myself, you know, he obviously had the, hear- the earphones in for the for the translation. Like, that that's a big thing and no yeah. easy thing for him to do. Yeah. You know, I mean, he sat there and not having seen the speech in advance, obviously, because yeah. we don't share the speeches had to see it and know that everyone was watching his reaction yeah. in real time. Yeah. And, you know, you you can agree or disagree with policies, but that to me showed that he was really serious yeah. um, about trying to make a change with whatever space was allowable 
for him to do yeah. so. Yeah, I mean, I always tell an important point is that we always think of Cuba and any communist country as like a monolith. Yeah. Um, Raul Castro was pushing like Fidel Castro, definitely much more hardline. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's any way that the opening happens if Fidel is president of Cuba. Mm-hmm. You know, Raul is more pragmatic. He's still communist. Mm-hmm. You know, he's still like um, has you know, his own history. Has his own history, yeah. but. He's a pragmatist too, and 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 was pushing out ahead of some of where some of the hardliners were in Cuba, and you know he's sitting in the audience, and Obama, you know, pretty robustly defended mm-hmm. democracy, called for elections in Cuba, yep. paid tribute to the Cuban Americans yep. who are seen as kind of traitors in Cuba. So it was it was um, you know while also you know saying you know honoring Cuba's achievements in healthcare and education, mm-hmm. you know we tried to encompass the full. That's right. History. It's actually like probably my favorite speech because it, it's just got like the the history of the U.S.-Cuba relationship, Latin America, you know, the the pros, the cons. Yep. The here's the statement of belief, the tribute to the Cuban Americans. One constant was the conflict between the United States and Cuba. I have come here to bury the last remnant of the Cold War in the Americas. I have come here to extend the hand of friendship to the Cuban people. I want to be clear. The differences between our governments over these many years are real, and they are important. I'm sure President Castro would say the same thing. I know because I've heard him address those differences at length. But before I discuss those issues, we also need to recognize how much we share. Because in many ways, the United States and Cuba are like two brothers who've been estranged for many years, even as we share the same blood. You know, it may be worth pausing here and just saying, like, by all accounts from people I know and trust who know what they're talking about, um, there's an analysis that, like, we went too far in that speech, Mm -hmm. that, that, that it prompted a... The irony is that the criticism of us at home was like, oh, you're not beating them over the head on human rights. Mm-hmm. When in fact, the reality is there was a backlash in Cuba from the hardliners. See, see, you let the Americans come down here. You let Obama go wherever he wanted. Yep. You let him give this speech. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and now we have to clamp down. It makes it harder for them to have the space it makes to it harder push for them to, change. Yeah. yeah. I mean, do, what do you what do you think of that? How do you answer that criticism? It's difficult, right? Because you're right. We do have our values. Yeah. Uh, we do have these tenets that we hold very dear as Americans. And we, I think, at least under President Obama, didn't have a policy of sort of trying to export democracy or, you know, nation build or remold yeah. things. And it was sort of based on respect and finding ways to make progress, no matter how small. And I think you're exactly right. You know, to critics, I would say, It doesn't do us any good or our sort of goals any good if we put the people who are going out on a limb within their system into a position where they have to back up and become more hardline. Yeah, yeah. Um, In fact, it hurts our goals and our objectives. You know, Alejandro and there were, of course, two other members of the negotiating team that we've, you know, never discussed publicly, and, and I, you know, won't reveal who they are here, obviously. But um, they were very different, right? One yeah. was sort of 
always asking for books on how does the National Security Council yeah, in the very U.S. Curious, work. Yeah. Very curious. Like, how does your government work? How does, you know, and I have no idea whether that's because, you know, he thought it was a good thing or a bad thing, but he was curious both, and wanted yeah, to learn. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the other who was definitely more of a hardliner. Yes. You know, he wrote down every single word that was said in any meeting. And very I thought, gosh, <laughs> someday yeah, there's yeah. going to be quite a record of this. Yeah. Um, but to their credit, you know, they were also engaged and there was probably a tension on their team as there sometimes was in ours where, you know, someone takes yeah. the hardline position, someone yeah, yeah. argues as the devil's advocate. And I think, you know, they all went out on a limb within yeah. their system. I don't think anyone can can argue against that. And for us to do anything that would have jeopardized their ability to do that would have just been shooting yeah. ourselves in the foot. Yeah. No, and they probably will get to, well, and unfortunately I have to mention Trump, but they probably suffered for it um, I'm sure. when Trump came in. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, my view of this is like in particularly complicated moments like that, all you can really do is say what you believe, yep. right? Um, and let the chips fall where they may. Um, the theory of our policy was that it's wrong. We should open up. It'll improve the lives of the Cuban people if we open up. And frankly, you know, clearly an embargo and yelling at them wasn't making them a democracy that not saying we we're going to transform them, but that like – Openness was more likely to That's lead right. to to liberalization. You I mean, know, we literally um, achieved no stated U.S. policy goal for sixty years. For sixty years, and then in the two years, more information reached Cubans, more outside ideas reached Cubans, right. more economic opportunity. You know, we people would say, "Well, it's still a dictatorship," and it's right. like, guys, it's been two years That's here. Right. Uh, but again, uh, what what Obama said is we're not going to tell you who we, – we don't want to pick the next leaders of Cuba. Right. And this might take time. And by the way, whatever evolves in Cuba might look different than the United States. Mm-hmm. But, you know, here's what we believe. We believe mm-hmm. people should have the right to speech and assembly. If you were to guess, where would you say your brain sacked up against other people your age? Have you guessed? Well, either way, do you think your memory or your attention, your general outlook is above average? Use Lumosity and find out. Lumosity is the world's most popular brain training program. Even though you can't see the results in the mirror or on a bathroom scale, if you want to keep your brain fit, you've got to treat it like a muscle. Sign up for Lumosity and take the free 10-minute fit test to get your baseline scores on three games and see how you stack up against others your age. That is when the training begins. With Lumosity Premium, they will even design a personalized training program from their 60-plus cognitive games and activities to challenge your key abilities like memory, speed, and problem-solving. With every game, Lumosity keeps track of your progress and shows you how you compare worldwide, all around the world here. Don't you want to know how you stack up? Find out right now. Go to lumosity.com slash crookedconvos to sign up for the free fit test, plus a 30% discount off Lumosity Premium. 30%. That's, um, that's a serious discount. It's spelled L-U-M-O-S-I-T-Y, lumosity.com slash crookedconvos, C-O-N-V-O-S, where you can take your free fit test and get 30% off Lumosity Premium. Lumosity.com slash crookedconvos. It's hard not to add a side of hot, crispy hash browns to your favorite McDonald's breakfast. It's even harder not to eat said hash browns before you get home. Now, then we went to meet with dissidents um, yes. at the embassy. Um, 
which, you know, the Cubans don't usually let people meet with dissidents or they block them from attending the meeting. Again, to their credit, um, they, didn't. they let everybody come, although they beat up some of them a yes. couple of days before. Yeah. So you saw the complexity there of mm-hmm. these people, you know, their freedoms are restricted, which you can forget when you're walking in a whole Havana that um, it was interesting to hear the perspective of those dissidents. Most of them supported very much what we were doing. And they believed that like just more connection to the outside world was better for them and, and could could pry things open in Cuba a bit. Yeah. You know, the critics mainly wanted us to just have dissidents more at the center of our policy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd candidly say that, you know, that uh, that approach hasn't worked. Mm-hmm. You know, like we, we you know, the, the Cuban government is very comfortable mm-hmm. just kind of repressing right. dissidents, yeah. right? And Obama actually gave them interesting advice, which is like, don't just be a dissident. Mm-hmm. Build something in your community. Like build, you know, build an organization or be an artist mm-hmm. or be a journalist like mm-hmm. Ioanni Sanchez, who we met. But you did you get to know any of these folks? Or Ioanni Sanchez, I remember you particularly were we're yeah. a fan of who's a journalist. Ioanni, uh, you know, Fortini uh, Medio, which is, you know, one of these publications, um, you know, that, that she runs and is involved with, has a great team of people that work with her. Like like every great person, right? There's yeah. a team behind them and, and doing great things. And uh, this guy, Alejandro, who works for her. Not Alejandro Castro. Not Alejandro, <laughs> no, not Alejandro yeah, Castro. Yeah. Yes, it must be said. You know, they, they follow that philosophy, right? It's, it's not about being an agitator for the sake of being an agitator. It's seeing things in your own life life that you want to see improved um, and doing what you can to, to try and improve them, not for the sake of agitating or for the sake of being a spoiler, but because you, you want a better life for yourself, for your kids, for, for whoever it is, you know, that that's important to you. And I think, you know, with that group that we met with, they all had different vehicles. Not all were journalists. Some were true sort of political activists. Um, some are artists, you yeah. know. Yeah. Um, they each have their their own path. And I think one of the things I always appreciated about President Obama is, you know, his sort of broader definition of civil society and who operates in that space that, you know, we've we've sort of carried forward in, in other things that we've done for him and, and recognizing that you don't have to be sort of a hardcore professional like protest marcher to be yeah. in the civil society space and, and make a difference. Yeah. You yeah. Know, an you, entrepreneur in a way. An entrepreneur, an, an, an artist, you know, an artist, others yeah. who um, who have other ways of sort of creating vehicles for free expression and yeah. and um, and dissent and things like that. And um, and so I think that was one of the values of, yeah. of how we yeah. did it. And I think the other thing is, frankly, if you asked almost anyone on the island or back here um, what resonated, it probably wasn't that meeting, it right? It was yeah. the baseball game or the speech, the speech or seeing him event. walk through Havana yeah. and talk to ordinary C- Cubans. Yeah. And I think that's part of the point, right? Yeah. Of if you put all the pressure on sort of, did you meet with dissidents or did you do this? Um, it, it, it's trying to make a point for the sake of making a point without really accomplishing. Yeah. It's really, I mean, if our whole policy outside of Obama's time has been embargo, support dissidents, mm-hmm. the embargo has done nothing to change the government and the support to distance has done nothing to help dissidents. Mm-hmm. It, there's an absurdity to it. And I always felt like it was kind of this pointless thing where the press would be like, you know, are you going to need the dissidents? And yeah. like the Cuban government actually, that's the first thing they agreed to. Yeah. You know, like they, they, they weren't that... Yeah. Um, so, um, but again, also worth noting, there are people who are incredibly courageous and yep. do suffer and yep. do in Cuba. In Cuba, Absolutely. and so that's why you have to do it is because yep. you want to show that they are not alone. And and hopefully, what we're trying to do though is to broaden the aperture of, right. of who we engage. Yep. 
That, so then we go to the baseball game, which is a great way to end it. Um, I mean, just describe like that feeling. Um, I mean, I remember stadium. walking into that stadium and you just had thousands of people, Cubans. I mean, it was mostly yeah. Cubans, obviously, aside from people who came with us, cheering and wa- like seeing Cubans waving American flags yeah. in Havana. Unbelievable, yeah. You know, it was just, yeah. it was mind blowing. And yeah. I remember Obama walking in and people were chanting his name yeah. and he was waving to the crowd and then. Castro came in, and of course, you know, having been on the ground six weeks earlier, I thought to myself, oh, thank God, like, there's a seat for Obama to sit in, and there's, like, paint, and there were little snack boxes that they had put out. That's what you're thinking of. You're not thinking of the feeling. (laughs) Yeah. You're thinking thinking, of the snack boxes. Right. I was like, the floor, the playing field looks level, and it looks like no one's going to break their ankle, like, running to first base. Um, And a couple of things stood out. One was um, seeing the two flags next to each other, you know, at at the Mm -hmm. top of the stadium. The second was when Mrs. Obama and the girls and the president took their seats, you know, next to President Castro. And as you mentioned, you know, Jimmy Buffett had wanted to sing the anthem and we got a lot of offers for that. And in the end, um, the Cubans really felt strongly that a Cuban choir sing the anthems. And in the end, I think that was absolutely the the right choice. I mean, hearing a Cuban choir sing both anthems was incredibly moving. And it was it was respectful, you know, of of us and sort of a a show of friendship. And then each of the teams came, I remember, and handed flowers to Mrs. Obama through the netting behind home plate, um, which was just this incredible gesture. And and then I remember you were you were running around trying to find someone and uh, oh, yeah, you yeah. and I were in this VIP section right yeah. and Alejandro was just sitting next to me yeah. holding his daughter yeah. he has a beautiful, beautiful daughter, daughter. Um, and I thought to myself as I'm looking around there's so much press here and there's thousands yeah. of Cubans and he's talking to me out in the open and what's going on yeah so it's funny for me because I met a, a Alejandro like 25 30 times at that point always but always like secretly yeah. like jetting off to Canada or Cancun or Trinidad yep. and or like you know in Havana and then he sat next to me Amazing. at one point with the, and I'm like holding his daughter and yep. like there's 40,000 people We're waving to his son and, over in another section. And the section. book is actually the first time I've said that Alejandro was my interlocutor but I was kind of like well you know he seems to not be ashamed or not ashamed but like wanting to keep the secret. I was actually negotiating th- till the very end because the Cubans wanted this photograph. That's right. It was at interesting. The, at the airport, right? Yeah, Raul's yeah. a very family-focused guy yeah. where Fidel notoriously was not. He yeah. had different children and different women yeah. in his life. Um, and Raul had the love of his life he was married to. Yes, and yeah. never remarried. And yeah. so he was very important to him that when we got to the airport that they take this family picture together with the Obamas, um, which was an audible and mm-hmm. – and I remember people thinking, oh, he's going to use this for some mm-hmm. propaganda. Mm-hmm. Well, no, he didn't, actually. It's yeah. interesting. I've never seen that picture. Um, I think it was just he's a family guy. Yeah. And, um, so, so then we leave, and basically everything had gone much better than we thought. Yeah. There was this amazing feeling that you describe. We had opened things up more in our policy. Um, but above all, like there was just a sense of, of like history happened and it yeah. went well. Yeah. I guess like one one place to begin to wrap up here is what is it about Cuba? I mean, it's this island of like 11 million people. Why does it occupy this outsized role in the world, in American imagination, in our culture? Like, why is it so important to you? Like, what? Not there's both the meta question, and then just you personally. Like, what? 
because everybody kind of falls for Cuba in some yeah. way. Like what? what well, I mean, there's the you? you know, in the broad sense, there's the sexiness of the history, right? There's yeah. assassination attempts, and uh, you know, this swarthy guerrilla commander who yeah. overthrows, you know, Bautista mm. and takes over and Bay of Pigs, um, Missile Bay of Crisis, Pigs, yeah. and John F. Kennedy, who's yeah. you know, sort of this historical legendary figure in our history. Um, and then there's the you know, sort of the the sultry mystery, right? It's like yeah. Havana and Guantanamera, yeah. and you know, all 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 of this. Wrapped up to, into it, um, you know, the Cuban cigars and Cuban rum and sort of the the forbidden fruit, if you yeah. will. Um, for me, I have to say, you know, in the beginning, it was sort of the intrigue of being able to do something that was truly life changing, right? Yeah. I mean, th- this was this was a game changer yeah. in sort of the the history of the world, yeah. um, and that was appealing. And then, you know, when you get involved and you get to know the Cuban American community, uh, and then the Cubans when you go down to the island. These are people who are passionate, who are smart, who are family oriented, who love life. They yeah. like to drink. They like to smoke. They like to dance. They like to cook. Yeah. Um, they're friendly. They're welcoming. Come into my home. My home is your home. What can I do to make your visit you know, better or more yeah. special? That's a really special thing. And I think it's really exciting. And to me, there will always be this soft spot because sort of the the myth and the history of it, not that it's shattered because that all exists, but you get to know this place on a more intimate level and it's a charming, wonderful, enchanting place with really incredible people. And that's a gift, you know, because it hasn't been open to us as Americans in the past. And to sort of go into this place where it's very unknown and you have no idea how people are going to react to you, you know, you could go in there and, and... think Cubans are justified in saying, like, why are you coming here? And yeah. there's been this embargo and my family can't get milk or I can't get this or this is crazy. I mean, people were wrapped in American flags. Yeah. Like driving in that motorcade, people were welcoming. Yeah. They were warm. And it's it's a testament to sort of the spirit of, of Cubans and Cuban-Americans. Yeah. And, yeah. and how can you not love that? Yeah. Really. Did you learn anything about yourself? Just in working on it and going to Cuba? And... Uh, I can hold my rum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's learned. really, Cuban rum is really amazing. <laughs> Cuban better. rum sorry, is really amazing. Sorry to all the um, you know, I will say this. I think for me, it was uh, an exercise in humility at mm. times. Yeah. Uh, I tend to be very rigid and sort of stuck in my ways. I, I have a thought and it's, you know, our way of doing this is the right way. And yeah. we have ethics and values and morals and we should not compromise them. Uh, and I'm not saying that that we did or you should, but um, there's something to be said for approaching people that you disagree with, even when you really disagree with them on, on policy, um, but approaching them with respect yeah. um, in in sitting yeah. down at the table yeah. and listening to what people have to have to say instead of sort of going off on yeah. your own sort of lecture. And... <laughs> Compromise. I remember after the election, uh, we were doing a Skype session with the I Cubans. cried. Well, you cried when <laughs> – what I remember is that you know the Cubans are, have every right to be pissed at us. Yeah. Because yeah. we'd been, oh, Hillary will win. That's and right. And they now, really went out on a limb. And they went out on a limb and yeah. now they're, they're going to be screwed. And you just kind of knew Trump was going to fuck it up, which he did. Um, not entirely though. I mean he just kind of hit the pause button. And, yeah. But anyway – I'm kind of apologizing, you know, and I remember Alejandro said, you know, you don't have to apologize. You know, you're the first person who ever treated us as respect, first American who ever treated us with respect, treated us as equals. And that's actually when you were crying because yeah. um, you had done that, too. And yeah. I think we also kind of knew that that approach was probably not going to be that's right. the new administration. And it doesn't mean 
you agree. It doesn't mean you validate their views. Or you think their system of government is even good. But it's a way for, for, for people and nations to yeah. address their differences. You can't make progress by bullying. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't work. And and what's the alternative? You know, like assassination or war or yeah. embargo. I mean, yeah. there was no progress. Yeah. Um, and if it we takes, tried all three of those things. We tried actually. all three of those things. If it takes um, sitting down at a table and really trying to understand the other perspective, even if you completely disagree with it. Yeah. Uh, and being respectful and eating some pig and yeah. drinking some rum. Yeah. Um, and that allows you to say there should be space for internet and space for quinta propistas or yeah. at least the space yeah. to yeah. discuss it. Yeah. Um, then I would say that that's that's progress. That's yeah. a march forward, and yeah. and um, and it was a learning experience for me, uh, yeah. and something that that I will carry carry forward with me. Well, I think that's a great note to end on, Brenda. Uh, uh, so thanks so much for walking <laughs> us through that story, and we live in those times. And it was amazing. Thank you for yeah. the opportunity. I mean, you no, no, and was... Ricardo and Obama and Susan Rice. You know, you guys created the space yeah. for this. Well, to and Cuba attracted. Interesting people, you know, just Absolutely. like an eclectic group of people. Yeah. But I hope. With good intentions and good hearts. And I think we'll get back there. I mean, I we'll, we will, this yeah. Trump age will be a bit of a missed opportunity, but I think, you know, and there's an inevitability yeah. to this, as the ballerina is. It's so. hard to close the door, which yeah. I think is yeah. is the hope we all have. When yeah. it cracks open a little bit, it's it's hard to slam the door on on sort of the hopes and the goodwill that, that yeah. were generated by what we did. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you, Brendette. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening. We'll have another Crooked Conversation next week where I chat with Tommy Vitor about what actually happened uh, with the Benghazi attacks uh, and how a series of conspiracy theories and cynical Republican politics and right-wing media helped create the environment that led to Donald Trump as the Republican nominee and ultimately the President of the United States. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. Three great words. Free fries Friday. Especially when they're used in that exact order. Get a free medium fries with $1 minimum purchase. Bottom up, up, up. Bell one time on Friday. Participating McDonald's through 1231.24 excludes tax must opt in rewards.